Hi, I'm Kate, and welcome to the Picture House Podcast, where we discuss the architecture, design, and history of America's early cinemas. We hope that telling the stories of these places and the people associated with them will help you explore their place in our collective memory and our communities today. This episode is going to be a bit of a departure from what we've done so far. Rather than talking about specific theaters or architects, we're going to talk about some important component parts of movie theaters. The things that made theaters cozy and inviting, that let patrons know a comfortable atmosphere was waiting for them. Splendid seats in a climate-controlled environment, plus cry rooms. These things could entice even the most hermity homebody to get out of their house for a few hours and enjoy a show. Air conditioning. These days, we consider air conditioning a given. We enter buildings expecting that they will be more comfortable than the outside. And with theaters in particular, climate control is almost a joke now. Many of us ask ourselves, why is it always so freezing cold in the theater? But it wasn't always this way. In the early days of movie going, audiences had to sweat and swelter just as they would out of doors. The first mechanically air-cooled theater in the world was the 1917 Central Park Theater in Chicago. This theater was the first effort from what would prove to be the dynamic duo of Balaban and Katz. Let's just say they came out of the gate strong and pretty much never stopped, but we'll save more discussion of them for future episodes. The meatpacking industry of Chicago made the city an ideal place for refrigeration innovations. Kreschel Brothers Ice Machine Company developed a CO2 cooling system used mainly by the meatpackers. But enter Barney Balaban. Prior to entering the entertainment world, he had worked for the Western Cold Storage Company, and he realized the potential of cooling systems. And so, he and Sam Katz worked with Kreschel Brothers to introduce such a system at the Central Park. Kreschel would make slight improvements when they next employed the system at Balaban and Katz's 1918 Riviera Theater. The Kreschel systems, however, didn't distribute the cold air evenly, and they also had a problem with humidity. They continued to innovate, with improved systems being installed at both the Tivoli and Chicago theaters in 1921. Balaban and Katz's climate-controlled picture palaces set them apart, with the cool atmosphere often credited for their theater's successes in the summer months. These systems, large and expensive as they were, continued to be installed in large movie palaces in the early 1920s. In 1922, Willis Havland Carrier of the Carrier Engineering Corporation of Newark, New Jersey, submitted a patent for a refrigeration system that would change the game. This invention relates to compression refrigerating systems in which a volatile refrigerant liquid is vaporized in an evaporator by heat abstracted from the substance being cooled, and a compressor withdraws the refrigerant vapor from the evaporator and delivers it at a higher pressure to a condenser in which it is liquefied, the liquefied refrigerant being returned to the evaporator. More particularly, the invention relates to a compression refrigerating system, in which a centrifugal fan, exhauster, or pump is employed as the compressor, adapted to handle relatively large volumes of gas at low differences of pressure, and in which a refrigerant is used that has a low vapor pressure and high specific density. Although this centrifugal system was first employed in department stores in 1924, its potential really shone once put into theaters. 
1925 was a big year for Carrier's Comfort Air System. It was first installed in two Texas theaters, Dallas's Palace and Houston's Texan. After the system's successful debut in the Lone Star State, it was also installed in Times Square's Rivoli Theater and made huge headlines. In June 1925, the Motion Picture News reported, The first serious depression in attendance with the Motion Picture Theaters on Broadway was experienced last week during the record hot wave. However, there was one outstanding exception to this slump in attendance. The Rivoli Theater not only maintained normal receipts, but actually enjoyed abnormal attendance during the entire hot weather. The explanation for this very remarkable attendance record lies in the fact that this theater was prepared to set into operation the new cooling plan which had been installed during the early spring. The enviable results obtained by this system in the Rivoli has been the cause of general comment among theater men. It is our prediction that the time is not far distant when all modern motion picture theaters will have similar installations. These new developments in engineering are now in a fair way to eliminate hot weather as a competitor in this industry. In the Rivoli Theater, this machine with all its parts is capable of producing 150 tons of refrigeration and is located in a small room beneath the lobby approximately 12 feet. The machine is automatic in operation and maintains the air at any desired temperature and humidity. Advertisements boasted that while it was 97 degrees out on the street on Broadway, it was a chill 75 degrees inside the theater. And before long, Carrier was advertising that, in addition to the aforementioned Texas and Times Square theaters, its system was in use at the Missouri Theater in St. Louis, the Metropolitan in Los Angeles, the Rialto Square and Capitol in Chicago, the Lyric in Indiana, the Miami in Florida, and the Keiths in Atlanta. Carrier's centrifugal refrigeration really was huge. Theater owners had to quickly install cooling systems or, to make a bad pun, they'd be left out in the cold. Shortly after the Rivoli's raves, reports were springing up of AC being installed in theaters all across the country, and not just by Carrier. Arctic New Air Cooling and Ventilating Company of Chicago and Helmer Air Conditioning Corp. of New York were just two of the other companies advertising cooling systems for theaters in the months immediately following the Rivoli's success. If not for Carrier's innovations, the summer blockbuster probably wouldn't be a thing, and today's theater-going experience would be a lot less comfortable. I, for one, am very thankful for Carrier's work. Sometimes a cool theater on a hot summer day just makes life seem worth living. The Cry Room The so-called cry room was just that. A separate room, usually at the rear of the theater auditorium and to one side of the projection room, where mothers, not fathers, perish the thought, could take their fussy children. Now, I really couldn't find too much on the origin of the cry room. On the one hand, it seems like something that would have evolved very organically. On the other hand, it seems like just the type of thing that an ad man would invent to help sell tickets. In either case, the earliest mention I found was a blurb in an October 1922 issue of Popular Mechanics, of all places. Babies can cry to their heart's content without disturbing anyone in a theater in Los Angeles, California, where a special room has been constructed for this purpose. A soundproof enclosure has been built at the rear of the first balcony, 
and is provided with a wall of glass at the front so that mothers can watch the picture while endeavoring to comfort their restless infants. A few years later, the cry room was apparently still something of a novelty. A May 1925 write-up on the remodeling of Kansas City's Warwick Theater noted that, an innovation here will be the cry room just off the main lobby and inside the theater, where its occupants may witness the picture through the double plate glass partitions which will comprise the walls. The cry room, of course, will be for fretful children and their parents. Before long, the cry room was quite common, showing up in many theaters in the 1930s and 40s. From a 1938 description of a cry room at the Beverly Theater in University City, Missouri, this room is carpeted and equipped with lounge furniture for mothers and infants. Vision of the screen is through plate glass, shatterproof to guard against injury to patrons in the auditorium below, while a speaker is provided here to supply the picture sound. A 1941 issue of the motion picture Herald described, in an interesting way, the cry room at the Vogue Theater in Lee's Summit, Missouri, a town of 2200. On an upper level is an 11-seat cry room located at one side of the projection room. Lee's Summit itself and its tributary area form a working man's and farmer's neighborhood. When these people go to the movies, they usually bring their children. Farm mothers don't raise children on cow milk. They follow the old-fashioned practice of nursing, which can be, in this day, rather embarrassing in an auditorium where there are other people. The cry room of the Vogue is seeing good service in this respect. The cry room was an effective way to make sure that all moviegoers, those with infants and small children and those without, could enjoy the show without disruption adding another layer of comfort. Theater seating. Lastly, we'll focus on an absolutely essential element of the movie house, the humble seat. To paraphrase the poet May Sarton, a picture house that does not have one warm, comfy chair in it is soulless. And as National Theater Supply Company put it, almost any kind of a chair is good enough to sit in for five minutes. But for two hours, that's another matter. It's a matter that makes personal comfort one of the showman's best bets on a steady patronage. Theater seats have to be roomy and properly shaped. They must be sturdily constructed and have silent, durable hinges. The fabrics used for upholstering need color and pattern in endless variety in addition to super-wearing strength. There were numerous seating manufacturers, such as Griggs Equipment Company, makers of the Pushback and Superstar, Peabody Seating Company, and Irwin Seating Company, makers of The Comet. But we'll look closer at three of the most prominent companies, Ideal Seating Company, American Seating Company, and Haywood Wakefield. Both the American Seating and Ideal Seating Companies were out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, which was prolific in turning out fine furniture through much of the 1800s and 1900s so much so that it was long known as Furniture City. Ideal Seating Company was incorporated in April of 1929 in Grand Rapids. The corporation was dissolved in late 1980. The company seems to have focused primarily on theater seating and was known for such named streamliners as the Aristocrat and Mercury. They also had the Universal, available in models of 32 variations including styles with self-rising or retracting seats or both. All models are of steel construction throughout, 
and have cushions that are locked in place without use of a tool. Seat cushions are of coil spring construction, and backs are of full length to protect the seat fabric. During World War II, their V-Line offered plenty of design and cosmetic options, while complying with the federal government's program of material conservation, without any sacrifice in comfort, durability, or attractiveness. The American Seating Company, which is still in business today, has made all kinds of seating. Classroom chairs and desks, church pews, opera, live theater, cinema chairs, even a recliner type especially suitable for installation in motor buses or other vehicles. Having been a premier provider for stage theaters and opera houses, American Seating was in prime position to manufacture seats for movie houses as well. As noted in the National Register nomination for the company's building complex in Grand Rapids, wood and cast iron opera house seats with hat and umbrella racks previously manufactured by American Seating gave way to opulent upholstered seats with elaborate Rococo detailing. More streamlined designs culminated in the Bottaform chair, introduced in 1938, the result of two years of research and testing. Hundreds of movie theaters, arenas, and auditoriums around the world, large and small, were seated by American seating. Many have been reseated two or three times. Notable American seating installations include five theaters in the Radio City Music Hall, the theaters in Lincoln Center, as well as the Normandy, Lowe's, Palace, Astor, Winter Garden, Schubert, Music Box, Helen Hayes, and the New Amsterdam, former home of the Ziegfeld Follies in New York City. The United States Senate and House Galleries in Washington, D.C. also feature chairs by American seating. Theater seating was not limited to use in theaters. Creative promotion expanded the market to include shoe stores, bowling alleys, lodges, school and college auditoriums, and courthouses. American seating was probably best known for the aforementioned Bottaform, which had a seat that rises automatically in line with standards by a mechanism within the seat structure. The company also had a retractor in which the seat was so suspended as to cause retraction by shifting of the body weight. Both of these models have spring arch seat construction and an all-steel back, including the inner upholstery panel. As advertised with the Bottaform chair, luxurious comfort is part of the picture. Haywood Wakefield of Gardner, Massachusetts, was formed when Haywood Brothers, founded 1826, and Wakefield Rattan Company, founded 1855, merged. The company did especially well in the first half of the 20th century, as it kept up with the popular styles of the times. In 1930, Haywood Wakefield claimed installation of a quarter of a million chairs at Publix theaters across the nation for the preceding three years. Publix was founded in 1925 when the Balaban and Katz and famous players Lasky chains merged. In 1930, they owned more than 1,200 theaters in the United States and Canada. Other theater owners, including Warner Brothers, RKO, Roxy, Shine, and a host of other progressive showmen have preferred to install Haywood Wakefield theater seating for good, money-making reasons. In the 1950s, the company was still going strong. With its relaxed recliner, the company boasted that there's nothing like it on the market today. This new chair with Haywood's exclusive self-adjusting back. Relaxed recliner is available with either padded or coil spring back, 
and your choice of the new sit-in or contour seat cushions. This luxuriously comfortable theater chair is another example of the famous Haywood engineering know-how to make theater seating as comfortable as the average patron's own easy chair at home. The contour cushion mentioned was of foam rubber construction and was designed to conform to the contours of the occupant's body as he moves about. Other Haywood Wakefield specialties included the airflow, equipped with a spring-based mechanism which allows change of seat to back ratio, according to the occupant's change of position, in a rocking effect. These and other products met the new era's standards of comfort and beauty, keeping patrons comfortably in their theater seats. These days, we might take for granted plopping down and luxuriously settling in to any seat in the house. But there was a time when plush cushions and intuitive adjustments were novel. Numerous patents show that a lot of work and innovation went into the comfortable seats we enjoy today. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. I need to give a quick note of credit to the Internet Archive at archive.org, which I used extensively for most of the research for this episode. The Archive has quite a few digitized editions of Motion Picture News and Herald, with a solid search tool that makes it easy to find specific stuff within each issue. These industry publications are invaluable for research, and I'm so glad that so many of them are available online. I hope that you'll join us for our next episode. Until then, may your seats be ever in the center. <laughs>